we absolutely had very clear idea that the customer is king when we were starting the company a lot of people told us are you kidding me you going to trust an 18 year old with 150 dollar piece of asset and you think they're going to bring it back and we had said very early on if we can send an 18 year old to war we can trust them with a textbook and the students came through for us they did an amazing job and they wanted a new price something different and they embraced it and they looked after the books and you know we never had issues we had some issues with returns but not because they were didn't want to send them it was they would forget they rented or they they had used their parents card and no everyone forgot they had rented the books and the parents were like okay you about to charge me for a late fee what is this for we like look you have all these books you rented they would go to the kids kids dorm room find the books and then ship them back to us so you know so a lot a lot of things that uh, worked out for us to grow the company but it was a lot to do with customer service That's interesting because I feel like most of the young entrepreneurs I speak with are focused almost exclusively on their products and the the tech they're building. What would you say to the entrepreneur who thinks building a successful company is all about building a great piece of technology? You know, I've seen this whole internet thing, right? My first uh, view of the internet was Yahoo when it first came out, right? Even laptops were just coming out when when we were coming out of college. so we literally grew with it and it was never about never about tech it was more about hey i wonder how we solve this thing and if tech happened to be the best way to do it sure but some of our biggest feats in building companies were never about tech but about understanding the customer's voice about understanding the reality of some laws that we have to embrace tech is a component that can help you get there but to build a company you have to have a holistic view of many things including empathy for your customers and your employees. That was Asman Rashid and as you just heard he thinks the key to creating a successful business isn't building great technology. The key to creating a successful business is to have great empathy. Asman Chenow among other things he's the founder of Chegg, the billion dollar textbook rental company. He didn't build Chegg by creating a better piece of technology for delivering books than other companies. After all, Chegg was competing with companies like Amazon. So, what did he do that worked so well? <laughs> You're about to find out. Let's get dialed in. Hey there and welcome to Webmasters. You're listening to the podcast that teaches about entrepreneurship and internet history by talking with the world's most successful and impactful digital creators. I'm Aaron Dinan, your host. I'm a serial entrepreneur and I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University. As you heard on this episode of Webmasters, we're talking with Asman Rashid, the founder of mega textbook rental service Chegg. We're going to hear all about how we built that in a moment, but first, I'm going to briefly tell you about this podcast's sponsor. Webmasters is being brought to you with help and support from our sponsor Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that helps people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That includes online textbook rental stores like we're going to discuss in this episode or really any other type of digital rental service. It also includes things like e-commerce shops, Amazon FBA's, SaaS apps, domain portfolios, basically any type of online work from anywhere internet business you can think of. 
If you're currently running one of those and thinking of selling it, you should think about talking with the team at Latona's. They've got decades of combined experience helping internet entrepreneurs sell their companies, and they can help you get the best deal for yours. Or if you're interested in buying an internet business, you should check out Latona's too. Just head on over to their website where you'll find listings of all the digital businesses they're currently helping to sell. That website is latonas.com, L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. Since the focus of today's episode is a company that rents textbooks to college students, and since I teach at a university, you'd probably assume I'm interested in Chegg because of its position in the education tech space. But honestly, that's not really the case. I'm not the kind of instructor who asks my students to read any of those big, expensive textbooks, so Chegg.com as a service isn't something that tends to intersect with how I teach, and I'm pretty sure my courses have never contributed a dime to their income, at least not in relation to their core textbook rental service. Instead, I'm interested in Chegg because of how successful of a company it's been, particularly in a market that I know from firsthand experience can sometimes be, let's say, difficult to service. Our biggest challenge used to be that, you know, students tend to come at the last minute to rent what they want, but the expectation is through the roof. Okay, now give me the best possible service, yet they want to do it on the cheap. And, and you know, the thing that I've seen throughout the time is they end up coming at the last minute and for them to understand that a, you know, a little bit more planning could go a long way in their life. But again, they'll get there over time. It's, it's the way you learn things. Now, I promise this episode isn't just an opportunity for me to gripe about the challenges of having college students as customers. Instead, Asman's strategy for working with his customer base is really what differentiates him as an entrepreneur. As we hear from Asman, you'll find that he rarely focuses on the kind of what he's building part of being an entrepreneur. Instead, he tends to focus on the why of being an entrepreneur. I am a serial entrepreneur based in Silicon Valley. And I like to build companies, I like to build things. And that I find the most exciting part of what I do is to create something new and take it to market, which describes how I feel about what I do versus what is it that I actually do. And the the feeling is about creating things, creating new things and solving a problem that helps people. I like to build those kind of companies and my philosophy is do well and do good. So I try to merge everything in my philosophy in in that element. I really like how you're focused more on the why of what you're building than the what. Uh, That tends to be something I hear a lot from successful entrepreneurs. But at the same time, I also hear a lot of people in your position really bristle at even the idea of calling themselves entrepreneurs, as though being an entrepreneur distracts from what they're trying to accomplish. That doesn't seem to be the case for you, though. You seem to really embrace being an entrepreneur. Why are you so comfortable with that term? Look, I embrace that term because there's nothing wrong with the term. I think people get stuff in their head and uh, it's all about a mindset. You can take anything and be a glass half empty, glass half full about it. I'm glass half full about it. And I just believe that entrepreneurship is about taking problems and coming up with new ways to solve them. So there's nothing wrong with the term. I actually even tell people that I don't even say entrepreneurship is about building your own company. You could have an entrepreneurial mindset at a job, at a place you work, 
and completely shift the way you do things over there. And that's equally as good. So it's, you know, it's not about being a sexy entrepreneur because you own your company. It's about what you do and how well you do it. So I embrace the term. I think there's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. Where did your passion for entrepreneurship come from? Did you grow up around a bunch of entrepreneurs? For example, were your parents entrepreneurs? Well, no. Um, I am from a family of, of government employees. I mean, my father was a diplomat. My uncles were in the government. And I had a cousin who did start a business as I was finishing high school, but he was just getting started. So there are no entrepreneurial background in my family, but it's a family of risk takers. They're not afraid to take risks. My father moved from India to Pakistan during the partition. At the age of 20, gave everything up and moved to a place where he had no idea what, uh, what the family would do. And then they built everything from scratch. My father, my family, other people, able to take risks. And that, I think, is the fundamental you know, element that you're comfort with taking risk, being passionate about something, and then just working hard at it. So I break down you know, entrepreneurship into what really makes it great. And that can come from anyone, not, not someone who's started a business. I've heard a similar sentiment to that before here on Webmasters. I remember I was interviewing Sam Yagen, co-founder of OkCupid, and he's also the son of immigrant parents. Sam was arguing that being an immigrant is inherently entrepreneurial. Would you agree? It is um, really uh, entrepreneurial because when you think about it, that you uproot your family, you go to a new place where you don't know anyone, and in some cases, you're, you're broke. Like when I came to the U.S., I had enough money to get going. There were times if we would sell our plasma to pay for food or we were on financial aid. But that's just part of who we become over time. I, want, I didn't want to ask my parents for money. And I said, we're going to do it on ourselves. And my roommate and I, we used to figure these things out. And I think I am from the school of thought that entrepreneurs are made, not born. And everything that happens in our life, from childhood, every, many things influence us. And how soon do we begin to adjust to them are the people who get further because they can embrace them, accept them, and grow from it. If something bad happened to me, you know, I would typically say, all right, how do I figure this out, get through it, and then try to learn from it, and frankly, move on. And so moving on part after learning something is when you really begin to understand, I'm capable of anything. And let's bring it on and see what happens. I actually teach a class at Duke, and it's one of my favorite classes to teach. It's called Learning to Fail. And it's all about how failure and mistakes, those aren't things to fear. They're how entrepreneurs learn. When you push hard, you're going to break something. And you quickly have to realize how you can step back and deal with it. But all these things you learn along the way... Um, I, will, I, can, I can give you some really interesting examples. My first job when I was working at a startup in Minnesota after I got done with my degree at the University of Minnesota, I was on a project with American Express and I was the only developer working late. It was 3 a.m. in the morning. And, the, you know, I'm going back in the way technology was. It was DOS and you had to work in the prompts and things like that, right? And they had given me a, a location to do my testing. And as part of my testing, when I would write code, I had to delete all the files, which would take two or three seconds. And then I would run my code. It would show me new files. And if they worked, it would show something. So 3 a.m. at night, I'm sitting there and I hit delete on the drive. Three seconds go by. I'm sitting there waiting five seconds. I'm really sleepy. And I'm like, okay, it's now 
30 seconds, a minute, five minutes, seven minutes. I'm like, okay, what is it deleting? What's going on? And at that moment, you know, I said, I wonder if they mapped the drive wrong to something because I only had access to one drive as a security precaution. I couldn't go anywhere else. And I stopped, the, I stopped the deletion. And I had a moment at that time, you know, maybe I'll just go home and deal with it tomorrow. Or I thought, what if something bad happened? Or maybe I need to wake the guy up who's in charge of this and ask him what happened with it. I decided to wake the guy up at 3 a.m. And he, when he heard what was going on, he panicked. He kept me on the phone. He logged in. And I could hear him swearing. Somebody had mapped production data to the J drive. I was deleting production files. But because I had called him right away, and within minutes, he was able to back up. And he said, literally, they lost zero data because we acted so fast on it. The fact that I had the courage to, and you know, I, I thought about leaving. I'm going to be honest. And I thought about maybe I should move on and we'll deal with it tomorrow. It's not my fault. I'm just deleting my drive. Or I said, let me look at the bigger picture over here. And I decided to look at it. And I learned from that day on how important it is to be honest with your customers, how important it is that we at least explain the problem. If, I'd, if I had gone round and round about it, by the time you would have deleted it, the East Coast would have, would have woken up. And God knows what would have happened. And so, you know, so these things like this, we learn along the way. And then I applied many of these things as I was learning them along the way um, on many different companies I did. And that is a great segue to, of course, start talking about the company we're here to discuss, which is Chegg. Can you tell us how that got started? Chegg was initially the Craigslist for colleges. Plan A for Chegg actually failed. And plan B, which is Chegg, what you see today, that's the one that worked. And uh, we started out by saying, look, we want to build a Craigslist for colleges. And why would you want a creepy guy on Craigslist to come to your dorm or to your apartment? Let's build a system for the students themselves. And it was working great. There was a lot of transactions at the start of the semester, at the end of the semester, but deadly silence in the middle. Right. So as, as we grew into Czech, we could see that we had a lot of page views. We had great, great vanity stats but there was no revenue coming in. And then we had to make a decision, all right, this model is not working. We really have to go figure out what, what to do. And in that model, in that check post, we realized that 80% of transactions were textbooks. Kids were buying used textbooks from each other. And you know, it made me realize that as a student, how upset we used to get when we would buy a book for $150, use it for a quarter, take it back to the bookstore, they buy it for 50 bucks and sell it again for 125 bucks. We're like, you know, this is so wrong. They're profiting from the students. And that whole, whole passion and anger actually resurfaced again in me. And uh, what I realized was, wow, this problem had gotten even bigger. And we said, you know, why not do something about it? Once you started focusing more closely on the textbook opportunity itself, as opposed to a broader marketplace for goods, what made you say that was a market worth going after? There are a bunch of intersections of technology that were happening at the same time. The biggest one was Netflix. Netflix established that you could rent something physical from a website, use it and return it. And that's when we were able to establish to investors, to customers like Netflix, you can rent a physical book, use it, and send it back. 
But in the case of Netflix, I can get behind the idea that it's an enormous market because, of course, tons and tons and tons of people watch movies, but only a relatively small number of people need textbooks. How did you know college textbooks would be a large enough market to support such a huge rental industry? Yeah, look, so obviously textbooks is a, is a $10, $15 billion, billion dollar market. And Amazon made a big name with, on textbooks, used textbooks. And even used textbooks were very expensive, right? And students were always complaining about it. First of all, we said there is a sliver of student that even today is looking for cheaper prices than used textbooks. So clearly, there's a market there, but it's a big pain point. Second, we also realized that a textbook goes for six semesters. So we did the math on it. We came with the pricing. We built a model which said a book will turn profitable in 2.4 rentals on average, right? And then it would be renting away for multiple more renters and really d- deliver more revenue than the, the price of the asset itself. But we iterated over it. So when we transitioned from check post uh, Craigslist to check this business, we had nine months of cash left in the company, right? When we made the transition, when we rented our first book, we didn't have a website, we didn't have any textbooks, and we didn't have any warehouse. We said, okay, we're going to use a just-in-time model, right? And the biggest validation we got was talking to the students. So what we did was my co-founder, Ayush, he went to a bookstore and he stood outside the bookstore and he said, hey, do you want to rent your books? As students were going in the bookstore to buy their books, right? They said, rent? What do you mean rent? We can do this? He said, yeah, tell me what you want. I'll go buy your textbooks. And then you pay me almost 40% of that. And just promise me that you'll return our textbooks. I'm going to email you the address to send it to. And in just half a day, he had 100 kids who were so happy hugging him that we can't believe this as an option. That's when we said, wow, talk about product market fit. Like students are hugging someone for renting their textbooks, right? But the validations kept coming and coming. We had parents who would call us, grandparents who would call us and cry on the phone. This is the first time I've been able to afford all the textbooks for my grandkids. Right, that's when you begin to realize you really are touching something which is bigger than something on a spreadsheet. You're touching something which is a real problem in every student's life. And to this day, I still don't understand why textbooks in the U.S. are so much more expensive when they are a tenth of the price in U.K. and other markets. I mean, the American consumer just keeps uh, getting stamped on, and that's just the way it is. And so, you know, so. The problem was real. The student reaction was real. The parents were real behind it. And we really realized that it's such a big market. It's waiting for somebody to come in and maybe change the game a little. I mean, we used to have a lot of conversations. Hey, do you, what do you want to be king of textbooks? I'm like, no, no, no. I want to be king of textbook rentals because Amazon's a king of textbooks. I'm not going to mess with that guy. We're going to be the big fish, as they say, in a small pond. And that's going to be textbook rentals. And, you know, throughout the process, we even figured out why Amazon would not never be a competitor. And, um, you know, that was a, it's almost like a story you would put in the HBO show called Silicon Valley. It would be a great episode to put in there because it's one of those things where you figure out and you almost like, oh, my God, the world's going to change for us now. I'd actually love to hear that story. Would you mind sharing it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a classic story that an entrepreneur who really does not have full knowledge of all accounting rules and regulations, 
no one can, right? Because you're on a on a horizontal level. But I'm arguing with my with my auditor who keeps on telling me, and this is 2009, 2008-2009, where Amazon was on record fighting US government that I will not pay sales tax on any product. There was a big brouhaha going on in all of technology landscape about sales tax. And my accountant kept coming and telling me, we have to charge sales tax. And I'm like, why would I do that? Our difference will decrease by 8.5% online taxes. Amazon will get an advantage. I'm already competing with them. Why do you want me to do it? And we're going back and forth. And I keep saying, why? I don't get this. Finally, I say, look, talk to me like I'm a five-year-old. Help me understand why do we have to pay sales taxes. And that's when they explained to me a simple accounting rule called Nexus. Nexus is when your property goes from one state to another state, if the title of the property is owned by me, you have to pay sales tax on it. But if you sell something, the title transfers and you don't no longer have to pay sales tax on it. Because we were renting, not selling, our textbook was going and coming back, so we had to pay sales tax. And I fell almost fell out of my chair because I realized that Amazon would never rent one textbook because you rent one product, your entire company has to pay sales tax. We raised $100 million within the next one year after we figured this thing out. Because everybody kept asking us, well, Amazon's going to kill you. And it was not a sexy thing. It was not a big technology. It was not a branding thing. It was not something. It was pure digging in and asking why again and again on a topic to say, hey, why, why does something like this happen? And getting to an answer, but realizing how big this was. That is a great reminder of something I often find myself having to explain to entrepreneurs, which is that business interests always trump product interests. As in, you know, in the case of what you described, yes, Amazon could do book rentals from a, a product standpoint. They obviously had the technologies and the infrastructure and the resources, uh, but they couldn't safely get into the business of book rentals without compromising the rest of their company, meaning, you know, business considerations outweigh product considerations pretty much always. I fully agree with that. On, on the day that we started Check, another company called Book Rental started. They had a much better name than us. They had a much better website. But we beat them through execution. Technology, application of technology, and ruthless execution on customer service, and many of those things. I mean, later on, we, we met with them, and they said, you're just like a machine. You just exhausted everyone in the industry with the execution. There are many people who get ideas. Ideas are all over the place. But what you do with it is where the real magic is. So let's talk a bit about that magic for you and for Chegg. How did you scale the business itself from the founders standing outside of a bookstore into a huge company? You obviously knew you had done something right. How did you build on top of that? Yeah, so the first thing was the moment we, we realized we got something, right? So we started, all right, we have a few challenges. We really have never built an e-commerce site. No, no, no one in the company has, right? Because we were a, a marketplace. The only access we've had to textbook is to use them as a student. We now don't understand the textbook industry either. There's a warehousing component to it that we need to do because it's warehousing and turning the books around. That's got to be the magic for us. We've never done that. All right, what are we going to do over here, right? It's a classic uh, thing that, okay, let, why don't we just figure out as we go? So what we did was we said, look, we don't have the money to go fill up a, a warehouse with textbooks. All of our funding would go just buying textbooks and you wouldn't even know what to get. 
because we didn't have the money to go buy the data, which says which textbooks are important. We said, you know, why don't we do this? Why don't we tell students, we, we got the entire catalog of ISBNs and stuck it into our website and let students come and rent whatever they wanted. Why would someone rent something they don't need? If they need it, it must be in use and must be in demand. So we'll, we'll get that. So we would actually, what we did was just in time process. The order would come in, we would run like hell on the back end, place an order on Amazon or half.com or eBay, many other campusbooks.com and have them ship it to the student. And then in the account, we would tell the student, here's the ma mailing label to ship it back to us, free shipping. That made sure that the student wouldn't have to, would use our label. But we started first by doing that to get the machine rolling just in time. We were entering orders manually on the back end. Then we automated that thing using, using some tools we made in-house to mimic a user, have 10 computers sitting next to each other, now placing orders on these websites because they didn't have an API for us to go do it. That's crazy. I, I didn't realize you all were just buying books on the fly from someone else and basically making money on the rental arbitrage. It's kind of a great example of exploiting a sort of entrepreneurial loophole. But going back to the core business question, there was still a big operational issue, right? Which, of course, was that in order to make money off of buying those books on the spot, you had to be able to rent them out again. How did you get the customers you needed in order to rent books again and again? And, and how did you collect and then ship back out all of those books? So now we are, we are using laptops and some screen software to go place these orders, right? Then we said, all right, now we've suddenly we've got 10,000 books rented. Where are they going to come back? We don't have a warehouse. Right? At this point, we still don't have a warehouse. So we said, all right, we don't know anything about a warehouse. Let's go find a partner. We found a partner um, who was in the textbook, in, in the book area. And he said, sure, I will handle your books for you. We're like, great, perfect. We put the address and the books would show up at the end of the semester to our partner. But that's when we begin to realize that we don't control one of the most important element of our business, which is management of our physical books in the back end. And we realize really quickly that if we don't control that and build our own warehouse, we can never guarantee the quality because our partner would say, well, the books have arrived in December 15th. I'm going to take a month to put them back on the shelf. That's when you can rent them again. We're like, hold on a second. We need to rent the books by January 1st because the new semester started. The priorities were not aligned. So we began to put these processes in place. But to your question, how did we find the early customers? There were two websites highly ranked by students for textbook searches. And so they used to list all the vendors by the, by the price of used books. And then you would say, I'm looking for you know, campus biology. It would show you a list of 20 people and their prices. Amazon would typically be on the top, but other guys would be competing enough. And we're like, we have to get onto this platform. So we talked to the owners. These were single, single guy companies that built the website. And we said, hey, can you put us on? And they were like, well, you know, it's great that you have this low price, but I can't put you on because I make a percentage of the sale price. I make a 10% commission on the, on the used book price. If I put you, you're going to cut my prices by two thirds and I'm going to go out of business. And, you know, I still remember the call I was driving and, you know, the call had come in and for him to tell me he was not going to do it. And on the spot, I made a decision, okay, how much money do you make for a textbook? He said, well, I make 9%. 
All right, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you 10% of the price of the book. You put us on, right? We would always be on the top of the list, even above Amazon, because there's no way Amazon could compete with us, right? And these two websites sent us our initial customers. I'm actually a little surprised by that. Based on just being on a college campus, I got the impression Chegg was more of a word of mouth kind of thing in terms of how it grew. Was that not so much the case? Am am I misremembering? Right around the same time, Twitter was coming around. So we used Twitter to run a campaign to which say, hey kids, here's your discount code. Paste it all over campus. Anyone who uses the discount, you get 3% of the sale, which was a better deal for us than giving 10% to on- online. We had this thing go nuts. I mean, there were kids making $5,000 a month in commission on from their campus. And they were pasting our stuff all over the campus. That campaign went crazy. And frankly, from that day on, we became established as the number one, even more books from Checkbook going on campus than Amazon. We had bookstores. We would track through bookstores on what's going on. And the books just tell us, you know, before it was all brown boxes from Amazon. Now all we get are the orange boxes from Check. So it was, it was a lot of things that we used incrementally, smartly, pricing-wise, messaging-wise, uh, service-wise. I mean, we absolutely had a very clear idea that the customer is king. And can you take us through the growth curve? How quickly were you all growing? Yeah, so um, by 2000 and summer of 2006, we had said, okay, check, both is struggling. In fall of 2006, we did our test with the students, 100 students, and we started building the, the system. In January 2007, we began to formally um, roll out uh, the whole program. And I would say by... End of 2008, we were doing $25 million in sales. It was dramatic. Yeah, wow, that's, that's some solid growth. And what about resistance from the textbook publishers? I mean, I know you explained why Amazon wouldn't compete, but what did publishers think of all of this? Surely you weren't making them happy by dipping into their profits in terms of number of books they could sell. Did they try to stop you at all? Well, so um, yes and no. The textbook publishers used to hate us in the start. Then then we became their biggest customer, right? Here's the the way textbooks are. As I was talking earlier about the title shifting, when when a publisher has sold their book, it's gone in the used book market, the publisher has no control over it. You can do whatever you want with it. I can rent it. I can do anything in the physical world. But when the books are going to digital, the publishers have now made sure no one can rent them. And they only give you a license to use. So over time, we kind of forced the publishers to also embrace technology faster because renting was actually hurting them. Uh, We actually also decreased the used book market, which also helped them. So in a convoluted way, we became a top five customer for every publisher. We were in their board packs as a top customer. And, you know, over time, they had a plan that they would go to digital books and they would kill this market anyway, which is true, which eventually worked. But even right now, there are enough people renting physical books. It's a big, big space. So with the publishers, I mean, you know, we did play some tricks. It's funny. I was meeting with some of the publishers in their mahogany offices and the mahogany floors. And um, we, when the model began to work, we said we got to figure out a way to slow the publishers down 
so they don't do something with the used book guys to rent. So we actually spread misinformation about ourselves in the textbook industry. It never got to the students, but in the textbook industry, we put out a rumor. There were these two guys who traded information. They, that was their MO. They would go and talk about stuff. So we told them, man, the books aren't coming back. They're coming with, with pizza in them and there's beer in them. And Czech is really struggling. We don't know it's going to work. And two weeks later, I, I get a call from one of the CEOs of the publishers, kind of laughing. Hmm, I kind of told you, right? I heard you guys are really struggling. And this thing is not working out. And I was like, yeah, I hemmed and hard, this and that. I didn't say much. What we did was we kind of froze their decision for three semesters. Because by the time they make the decision and the textbook publisher comes around and looks at it again, a lot of time has gone by, right? And that's the time we needed to establish ourselves and we did. So, you know, so we did a lot of, I mean, I'm telling you one of hundred crazy stories that went down when we were building this company. And then just to wrap up your time with the company, when and why did you step down as CEO? Yeah, so um, I stepped away twice. First, I I'd hired another CEO that didn't work out. I stepped back in. I stepped away at the end of 2009 after we did our Series D. Uh, we had raised um, at a valuation of 700 million, roughly 700 million back in that day when the markets were collapsing. And... You know, I tell this to students all the time that entrepreneurs really also have to know themselves. Ben Horowitz did a fantastic job in talking about two kinds of CEOs, a wartime CEO and a peacetime CEO. And I think I'm a wartime CEO. I really like building things and understanding the problem and solving it. And I don't get as excited if I have a lot of people reporting to me, like 10 VPs. And I experienced it at Chegg as well. And I was, it was not something I look forward to doing every day. I mean, Dan is an amazing CEO and he, he came in and he's passionate about taking it to the next level. And that's where I see my inter intersection that it's fun to, I like building it, but there are people, the company and the employees and the investors, they deserve someone who really, really wants a job. And I, I figured that wasn't me and I would prefer to go build a lot more things which I've been doing and loving it. So since you've left Chegg, what have you been up to? Well, so after we left, um, I decided that let's build what's next for education. And this is before iPad. We decided to build a two-screen tablet in 2009, 2010. It was called the No Tablet. And we built it in record time. We built the entire software, the platform, operating system for the whole thing. And just a few weeks before we were about to ship it, iPad got announced. And uh, back in those days, if Steve Jobs did something, nobody else was going to do it, at least for the next five to seven years. And, you know, we, it, was, it was a hardware company that required a lot of cash to take it to the next level. It was one of the hardest decisions we had to make because we had built such a beautiful product. I mean, you know, it was big enough that you could have a textbook and take notes on it as well without having to carry all the book bag with you, right? We were really building the next platform we could even help students with their study habits that, hey, you, you tend to cram at the last minute and your grades are showing that you're cramming at the last minute. Here's some schedule for you to do it a little bit more throughout the week, right? It was really allowing us to do all of that. And we had built this amazing, uh, amazing tablet and which eventually got acquired by Intel. And we converted that to a software company acquired by Intel. And then Intel used it to take it to education ministries across the world. And so the, we did the no tablet, but we got stomped on by Apple pretty bad on that one. Um, 
but then um then since then i've um, also been doing a few interesting things i've opened a private school system in pakistan one of my decisions over i think 7 8 years ago was i couldn't see the point of building yet another company in the us because it would be you know same thing i wanted to give back to a country which had given back to me and i wanted to open a stem school system because um my philosophy is that pakistan as a country has lost on many technological waves and the next one that's coming it's going to be so massive that if the kids are able to think through and process uh, the problem solving they'll be able to take through anything uh, going forward so i've opened a stem school system in pakistan we have 13 locations i'm opening resorts as one of the things i'm doing um, i'm opening some luxury places in northern pakistan It's interesting to me that you've stuck around the education space even after Chegg. Out of curiosity, is that intentional or just kind of happened to be where you landed? No, no, it it draws me because it's one of the biggest impact you can have on the next generation. And you know, we built our school starting from from kindergarten not high school. Because we said, look, let's bring a body of students up with this um, concept-based education and this learning. and do it at a price point in in which even the uh, lower middle class parent can do it versus just the rich so you know so we've done it to be impactful and we've done it to be a catalyst so that other school systems would then be forced into going the route of stem and arts and doing some of those things so it was well thought out for us to go do this particular thing And as we wrap up the story of Usman Rashid and Chag, we're right back at the place where we started, which is a founder who understands that starting companies isn't about building things, it's about solving problems and bringing value into the world. Usman did that when he created value for students by giving them more affordable access to textbooks, and he continues doing that today by among other things, giving students in Pakistan more affordable access to great education. an impressive legacy of entrepreneurial achievement and one I'm excited to have been able to share here on Webmasters to continue following along with the other great work of Asman and what he's up to now why not check him out on Twitter he's at Asman Rashid and to continue following along with the admittedly not quite as noble work that we're doing here on Webmasters you can follow us too we are at Webmasters Pod or follow me at Aaron Dinan that's A A R O N D I N I N You can also find lots more content about startups and entrepreneurship over on my website. That would be AaronDinnan.com. I want to thank our audio engineer Ryan Higgs for all his help pulling together this episode, and I want to thank our sponsor Latonas for their continued support. Remember, if you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, you want to check out Latonas.com. Finally, I want to thank all of you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Webmasters, there are lots more to listen to. Find us on your podcasting app of choice. Just search Webmasters two words. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe so you get all the newest episodes as soon as they're released. We'll have another one for you on its way very soon, but for now, well, I think it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>